has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Welcome, all you friends and subs and fans of Duty Ron's show. I saw that he took you on a real journey to Rex Uerman's house, showed you all kinds of angles, showed you that the crime scene is still alive nine days later. And then he took you on a ride to Gilgo Beach, which is, uh, you can see how dark and spooky that locale is. However, folks, let's get back to the, to the crime scene. This case is going to be solved through, of course, through science and, of course, the art of investigation. But the most important evidence to this case will be scientific evidence and scientific evidence in the way of DNA, uh, DNA, mitochondrial DNA. Uh, you hear terms like RFLP, restriction fragment length polymorphism. You hear terms like PCR, polymerase chain reaction. You hear terms like STR, short tandem repeats. And it just shows that the technology has advanced so much that they're able to identify piece, small little hairs that have been around for 10 or 12 years. And some may have been a bit degraded, but yet they were able to extract enough DNA out of the mitochondrial hair follicle. In one instance, one single hair to identify Rex Ewerman. And we talk about going back to his modus operandi, and we talk about the signature, his signature, which appears to be uh, at least on three of, of the victims, was to leave camouflage burlap bags wrapped around the, the victims, taped around them. And those are the things that potentially contain the evidence. But let's get back to the crime scene, to what, what's happening right now. And staying in a crime scene for nine days is a long time. And believe me, the Suffolk County Crime Scene Unit and these forensic investigators would not be doing this. They would not be spending all that time there if this was not bearing fruit. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture that possibly these were the locations where he took his victims. Now, we won't know that for sure unless forensically they can match up forensic evidence with any of the, the potential victims. The other thing is that, folks, many of some of you don't realize is that when the police picked up Rex Ewerman and he immediately said, I want an attorney, that was the end of it. They were not allowed to interview him after that. Once you invoke counsel, there is no interview by the police. Some folks that aren't, they don't understand the criminal justice system. That is it. Once a defendant says, 
I want an attorney, all questioning must cease. So I don't even know if the questioning uh, began and he asked for an attorney. And that means, of course, other things than pedigree, your name, your address, your date of birth. Nothing to do with the, uh, with the actual crime. You cannot interrogate the person. So with me tonight, folks, we're going to take a dive into this and what they have, what else they're discovering, what else are they looking for in this case because it's a wide-open case now. Because guess what? Rex Ewerman's not going anywhere. He's in the Suffolk County Jail, and the Suffolk County Police, the Suffolk County DA's office, the state police, the FBI, the Suffolk County Sheriff's office, they can all take their time right now because he's not going anywhere. The speedy trial, he may opt that he wants a speedy trial. We'll see. I don't think his attorney's going to make any motions for a speedy trial anytime soon. With me tonight, joining me tonight, it's a pleasure that I'm not running solo tonight. I have the great retired NYPD sergeant, professor, lawyer uh, from Albertus Magnus College in Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Professor Mike Geary. Mike, how are you? Good. Thank you for having me on tonight. Good to see everybody. Well, I'm glad you are because, you know, Mike, I'm burning a lot of mileage on these vocal cords, you know, and I can always use uh, use an assist, use a partner. You know, Mike, you will listen to what I was saying. Have you ever seen in your police career or in any time in your lifetime a crime scene stay open and active for over nine days? Billy, you know, not in New York City. The only one I could even think of coming close that I'm aware of would be the Koberger case. But other than that, in New York City, we had crime scenes out in the middle of the street, you know, Jerome Avenue, Tremont Avenue, in apartment buildings and vestibules. And, uh, you know, everyone did the best they could at the time with the technology we had and the demands that, you know, of, of living in a large city. Um, I've, I couldn't imagine you know, nine days uh, working on that house. The only thing I could think of is it is so full of stuff that they are like a hoarder's house that they are going really slow. They don't want to miss a thing, but I've never seen that length of time for an open crime scene. Would you expect there to be forensic evidence after all this time? Is there any possibility that they could collect biological evidence from a crime scene that potentially is 10 or 12 years old? Well, you know, it's possible because we, we do know that uh, if, if the, uh, the DNA, the, the, whether it's, it's skin, whether it's uh, hair follicles, whether it's blood, saliva, you know, all those sorts of things, if it's on clothing or it's on some sort of, some sort of, uh, sub, you know, like, like clothing, whatever, paper, whatever it happens to be, but it is stored properly, it may last for, for, for well over a decade. And so that's, that's terrific. You know, that's what you're hoping for. And um, if, you know, if by chance he may have killed one of his victims there or maybe several of his victims there, because I don't think he would do it at a motel. You know, I don't think he, I think he'd do it somewhere, someplace where he felt like he was totally in control of the environment and in a hotel or motel there might be a security camera there's people coming and going all hours of the night you know you want to be you want to feel like you are in charge you're dominating situation you got all bases covered so i think that there's a good possibility all you're looking for is 
one hair from one of those poor ladies. That's all you're looking for. Something like that, that maybe he didn't, maybe I would imagine he would vacuum up the place to try to clean up. But, um, you know, if you just miss one hair and if there's carpeting and you miss it, it might be there for, for years and you don't even know about it. And so it's a distinct possibility. I don't think it is outside the realm of possibilities whatsoever. Just keep our fingers crossed that there is something there. You know, Mike, there's also um, scientifically there's chemicals that crime scene technicians use that can make blood appear. Uh, mm -hmm. That, you know, we saw that in the Koberger case. That's right. Uh, there was a bloody footprint on the rug made with a very specific type of shoe, the bottom of a shoe. And initially they couldn't see that. Then they applied some chemicals to the rug and lo and behold, it appeared. The same is true. I'm sure they're going to use luminol. They're going to use sure. amino black. They're going to use all kinds of crime scene chemicals that can bring up uh, potential biological evidence that is you cannot see with the naked eye. But use these, look, these are professional CSI technicians. So if there is evidence there, they're going to uncover it. You know, I wanted to say another thing. There's been a lot of talk about did he take the victims to the house. And what we found out is when we talk about cross checks and connecting the dots, every time he had, he was connecting with a, um, a sex worker, let's use that term, uh, on his, on his booster, his burner phone, his booster phone, whatever you want to call it. It so happened that his wife was out of town. And I would imagine that would also mean that the kids or the children or now their adult children mm -hmm. were out of town so he knew what he was doing so is the potentiality there that this is where the victims met met their you know met their and their fate and because one of the things is if he had a garage door and it was late at night and he did the killings inside he could easily transport the body into that Chevy avalanche without anyone seeing him That's right. and then drive it to, uh, to Gilgo with that we know is 25 to 30 minutes away from his house. I saw a report today on one of the TV channels and someone was trying to convince people that he's a duck hunter and he may have moved the bodies in, in a boat across at nighttime. And I found it to be so far fetched because first of all, that gives you too much exposure. Now you got to drive to the boat with the body. You got to take the body out of the car, put it in a the boat, then drive the boat. Where do you leave your car? You know, and then get out of the get out of the boat. You know, so I I, was, I thought it was a little bit far fetched. What are your thoughts on that, Billy? I think you're right. I think it is. It is. It's a. It would make a great plot for like like a murder mystery. But I think it's you know what's the most likely scenario. You always think about what's the most likely scenario. What's most likely to have happened, and I think. It's the, the, the closest, you know, the easiest way to get from point A to point B is a straight line in your car. You have them in your back of your avalanche and you drive them out to a place where, you know, it's really desolate. Three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. Nobody's coming around. Your car is dark. You pull it over to the side. It might take you 10 minutes to dig. Boom. Put the uh, person underground. They weren't deeply you know, dug. It wasn't like they, he went six feet down. He probably went down. A foot maybe covered him up, figuring, look, it's really brushy. And you've seen the videos of the cops going through the brambles and, and, and stuff like that. 
This is not like a beautiful path to a beach at Jones Beach. No, this is the dunes, and there's nobody traipsing around these places. And because there's all these thickets, and uh, you're probably going to get bit by all kinds of bugs and stuff like that. So that's most likely what he did. Because again, he wants to be comfortable. He wants to be in control. He was. He's. I, I'm. That's why I'm, I believe he did kill them. At least one of them in his home. He doesn't want to do it at where they where they live. He doesn't want to do it in a motel or hotel. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he's going to do it when his wife isn't around because when his wife isn't around, he's got control of his home environment. And that, you know, and that uh, unsolved crimes. <clears throat> I, I agree with you. There's no way he did it in the boat. There's no way he transported in the boat. There's no, I think that's a ridiculous thought. I think people that are, are inventing this are because he was a duck hunter. Okay. Very okay. good. You know, and he had those burlap, excuse me, those burlap, uh, what are they called? The bags, the uh, that were camouflage in color. Yeah, yeah, that that were like you also used for duck hunting. Mm -hmm. So that's the only reason they're saying, "Oh, I, you know, I think it's ridiculous to think that because it gives you too much exposure. You're, you, there's too many moves you have to make. Yeah, it's there's a too lot many of potential. Yeah, there's so many potential people. So unsolved crimes. Uh, I think the exact great minds think alike. So we. Uh, we both think the same way. Um, you know, that's the thing with, with the, the forensic evidence uh, in the house. And again, nine days later, they're diving through there. We don't know what they recovered from the storage facility. There could be uh, lots of evidence there. We don't know specifically with the 300 subpoenas how much digital evidence, how much uh, other evidence they collected through those subpoenas, through, you know, through Google, through Facebook, through TikTok, through all any kind of social media that he potentially was on. Some of them also were cell phone subpoenas. So you can imagine the amount, the, the sheer volume. I think you would need, with a case like this, you need someone just to index all of this evidence to keep track and I've seen huge cases like this, and all the records to these cases are so voluminous. And the talk about the, the person that has to be the most organized in a case like this is the prosecutor. They have to be so on top of this and know what each speck of evidence means, where it's stored, speak about it, when to present it, if to pre present it, all of those things. So this is a voluminous case. And again, we're still we're still digging. We're still digging because we haven't uncovered everything yet. Yeah, Bill. Just just think about you know, and a normal you when you were in Manhattan North Homicide, you were a supervisor. Some of your uh, detectives had numerous homicide cases. I remember homicide detect uh, detectives in the my the four six my old command. They might have three or four homicides that they were working on simultaneously because it was that busy. And so, but with it, and, and you know, district attorneys are busy and they might have uh, a number of cases, 20 or 30 cases that they're working slowly through the criminal justice system. In a case like this, you're not going to do it because they don't want to miss anything. They don't want anything to drop through the cracks. I'm sure from day one, when they had that uh, task force set up, there was at least one, or possibly three, I would imagine, district attorneys pretty much assigned full time there because you got to go through all the old evidence 
put it in in your imagination. Where does it go? How does it fall? Reorganize it and just you know, start at the very beginning and uh, go through it with a fresh pair of eyes and just see what was what's going good, what was being missed, and and shepherd it through the process along with the you know first grade detective that is on that case. You know, and you've got detectives from different uh, varying commands like Nassau, Suffolk County, state police. You know that sort of thing. That's a full-time job, just being the managing attorney over that, because uh, you don't want to miss anything. Nothing can fall through the cracks. This is too important a case. Absolutely. You know, folks, we spoke a little bit about the family um, uh, the other night, and we don't mean to disparage the family at all, but we, I personally wonder how they didn't see any sort of apparent behavior in their father and in the wife in her husband, like nothing he did raised them up in any way. So in my mind, they were either ignoring his behavior and they just sort of almost were like accepting of his behavior because how did he disappear in the middle of the night? How was he? And people say, Oh, how do you know that? Well, he has cell phone records that show that it shows that he was dating sex workers. So, how did they not notice some of these things? Um, that's all we're questioning. We're not blaming this. We're not family blaming. We're just wondering how could he do these things and them not see a kink in his behavior? I, I, I don't really get it, Mike. You know, we were talking about this the other night uh, with Melanie and Phil, and I opine that, you know, you grow up in a house, like with that daughter, she grew up in that house, she didn't, that, she didn't know any other home. And, you know, and that was her biological mother and father. And over the course of many years, you know, families have their own interactions, their own unique way of doing things, um, the way they relate to each other. And I kind of opine that it was probably something that they just gotten used to. Yeah, dad isn't the warm and fuzzy kind of guy, like, you know, father knows best, some old TV show. You know, he was he's distant. He doesn't, maybe he's grumpy. Maybe he uh, works late at night. And, and yeah, there's some stuff that, you know, he might be doing. Maybe there's a pornogra pornographic magazine lying around or whatever. Um, but, I've, but I was talking to this with my wife today, and I was like, you know, do you think it's also possible that he was just very intimidating? And they didn't, they accepted, you know, the idea, and probably his, his wife understood what he might be doing on the side with porn being addicted to it. I, I think she probably was very scared. This guy is 300 pounds, uh, 250 pounds at least. He's a huge dude. Um, I think they probably, based on how quickly she filed for divorce, she's not going to stand by her man, and I don't blame her. I think she's probably relieved because he's out of the house. I think he was an ogre, and I think he was a very intimidating person, and if they thought of something or if they saw something, I think they just kept it to themselves because I don't think he's the kind of guy that you could go in and say, hey, honey, we got to talk about this addiction you have. I don't think that his wife would do that. I think she probably was scared out of her mind. Uh, Annie McLaughlin, Boston, might have known he was weird and difficult, but unable to deal with it. Denial. Yeah. He was probably not someone to admit he needed therapy, psych help. No, there's no doubt. Yeah, he wasn't going to admit that he needed therapy, but, but he, when you we see what he was doing, yeah, uh, you know the, the 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 sites he was searching on the computer. I want to get to this. This is a comparison 
uh, with we, we'll hear this down into this recording, but a comparison with the BTK killer and a little bit of an interview with his daughter. So I'm wondering tonight, what is the family of the suspected Long Island serial killer going through right now? What, what is this whole experience going to be like? And what we've heard from law enforcement, um, this is not about anything that they did. That's what we're hearing, at least. So what, how do, how do you, how do you, you know, comprehend all of this, where your life has been turned upside down in a moment like that? And now the, the spotlight, to a certain extent, is on you as well. Because you are the wife, you are the son, you are the daughter of someone who is suspected of being a serial killer. Why don't you take a listen? This is Rodney Harrison, Suffolk County Police Commissioner, who gave us a slight indication about the reaction of the suspected serial killer's family when they found out. When we initially uh, informed them about uh, their, their husband, their father, uh, they, were, they were shocked. Um, they were disgusted. Uh, they were embarrassed. Uh, so if you ask me, I, I don't believe that they knew about this double life that Mr. Harriman was, was, was living. But uh, you know, time will tell. And once again, is there still a lot more questioning that needs to be done to the family, to friends, uh, taking a look at some of the calls that are coming in and seeing uh, what information we could gather to see if the family might have known exactly what, what Mr. Harriman was up to? You know, Mike, uh, I, I just, I, I get that. And I have nothing but a thousand percent respect for um, Police Commissioner uh, Rodney Harrison. Um, but I just think, how could you be doing these things and not show some kind of behavior, even, even a bullying type? I would guarantee he's a bully. Oh, yes. Just by his size, his girth. The way he carries himself, he's six foot four, six foot five. That guy weighs every bit of three hundred pounds. When you said two fifty, I was going to say which leg, you know? Because <laughs> I try to be he, nice. He, he weighs every bit of three hundred pounds. I, I think his persona, he's a big bully, you know, and he carries that and he uses that to his life. That little video we showed that one time when he's talking about the hammer, the architectural hammer he carries around with him. And he sort of made a joke out of it, but it wasn't—it wasn't that funny, in the context that he sort of used it. So I think he carries himself through his life. How about some of the things he also did? He owed a huge amount of money in taxes. I think it was like two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. He staged vehicle accidents mm -hmm. for the purpose of suing people. That's not an ab abhorrent behavior. That's normal behavior. So, and I'm not saying. Other people do that that aren't serial killers, but he's also a serial killer. So he had, he showed some other apparent behavior that the family had to notice some of these things. The wife didn't know he owed $250,000 in taxes. She didn't know he was staging motor vehicle accidents. She didn't know he was going out late at night. She didn't know that he was dating sex workers. She didn't know any of those things. I Look, I'm not blaming the family. I just think when you take a deep dive investigatively and then of course when this is over a psychologist would have a field day with this family what did you notice what didn't you notice and again i'm not victim or family blaming them i'm just raising some questions
Yeah, Billy, I'm not sure if it's a choice of all or nothing. I, I like they knew he was probably a serial killer or they thought he was an angel. I think somewhere along the line, they were used to his bullying behavior, accepting uh, his behavior. You're in a marriage. You've got this daughter. Um, I think probably, you know, in New York uh, or any, any, any woman who's in a domestic violence situation with a bully, and you and I have dealt with this so many times in the street, um, they, they, they are intimidated. Um, and I think perhaps his wife didn't feel like she had any other choice but to stay with him. She's raising this daughter. Um, perhaps he threatened her in the past. Um, so I think somewhere between knowing everything and knowing nothing uh, or suspecting nothing is somewhere in the middle. She knew some of his deviant behaviors, of course, not all, but I think she knew there was girls on the side and, and, and things like that and that he was a bully. But I think she accepted it just to protect herself and her family. Um, but as far as the, and I think the, the, the fact that she's not staying with him, standing by her man, I think she is absolutely so relieved he is behind bars that the first thing, she, one of the first things she did is she filed for divorce. And um, I think maybe now she could recover from that. So it's tough. Somewhere in between the two extremes, I think, is where they live. You know, Mike, I'm a cop. And this is not my area of expertise, but I think it's, it has to be asked. It has to oh, be no, talked to. about. And uh, I thought we would bring it up because I'm just wondering that. I'm really wondering that because I've seen how much family yeah, family dynamics and that yeah. when something like this occurred, the family pretty much knew something really was wrong, but didn't, didn't do anything about it, you know? And uh, let me play a little more of this. And again, right now, they have no information that, or no indication or evidence that they knew any of this was going on. As a matter of fact, they've sort of indicated that when the family was out of town and out of the out of the area is when these things, these murders may have occurred. So to understand this tonight, I want to bring in a very special guest joining us tonight from Orlando, Florida. Uh, she's the daughter of the infamous serial killer, Dennis Rader, known as BTK. Uh, Kerry Rawson is has been kind enough to join us tonight. Uh, Kerry, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, let's can we start here um, because Rodney Harrison there describing the first time law enforcement revealed to the family what they suspected um, the father had done here, the husband had done here. Um, that's a difficult moment from your own personal experience. Um, what was going on in your family when the arrest was made and, and the announcement was made? Um, so my father, Dennis Rader, otherwise known as BTK, was arrested in February of 2005. The law enforcement had been looking for him for 31 years, and he had been dormant for um, almost a decade and a half, and then he came back and started communications and playing what he called cat and mouse games with law enforcement for almost a year. And so they narrowed him down through a massive investigation, multi-task forces, um, massive DNA swabbing. Um, and we were complete, we knew that they were looking for BTK. I was married, I was in my mid twenties living in Michigan. Um, this was all happening back in Wichita, Kansas. And so um, like we knew that we knew they were looking for BTK, but it wasn't until um, there was a knock on my door by an FBI agent literally saying, 
like, I need to talk to you. And then he just dropped it and he said, your dad is BTK. Um, and so for us, it was just a total, absolutely shock, completely floored. Um, I went into medical shock. I was shaking for five days. Um, it took three or four days to get me back home due to the media and everything going on. Um, we basically just got me on a plane and got me home. And then we all just hunkered down and wrote it out. Was it, and and I can't imagine what you were going through, was it difficult to, did you believe it at first? Did you, were you skeptical? How, how, how did you receive that information? Um... I was like all of the emotions you might have when you're going through grief, right? So you, you go through anger, you go through bargaining, you go through denial, you're going through shock and you're going through trauma. And so, um, I literally became a trauma victim at that point, um, of the notification because I thought like my mother had been killed by my dad. I thought my grandmother had been killed by BTK. I, I thought I had lost family members um, and I, I have PTSD still uh, like 18 years later from that moment. So, you know, they are comparing now and of course it's way, way too early to compare anything because we don't know everything about Rex Uerman yet, but people are already comparing him to BTK or BTK to Rex Uerman. Now, one of the things I think we all as professional law enforcement and investigators, we expect the worst in this case because we see all the indicators that this man did not start doing this at the age of 46 when these cases started 13 years ago. We believe he started way before that. So what else are they going to find out? And the scientific trail we need here and the investigative trail is what's what's necessary here. And that's why this case is just so, so, so important. Mike? Yeah, Billy, he, he might have started uh, frequent, frequenting sex workers back in, in the 1990s or even up in the 80s. You know, who knows when he did start and wondering and then you figure why along the line of, of the workers that he did solicit, why did he kill these four or these three right now uh wh why did, would he kill these three um and that's an interesting question as to what was going on um his addiction to pornography and female violence did that just you know hit a crescendo and maybe 20 years earlier it was just for fun you know you want to really know what his developmental trajectory was for the time he began this sort of uh uh aberrant behavior to the time that he committed the homicides and then for the, for the past in the past 15 years now since um that's something that maybe a criminologist would be able to figure out but yeah there's maybe uh, i'm i'm i'd bet my paycheck there's a lot more girls that we know than we know about right now who've been killed by by him and i'm thinking uh, i talked said this the other day i'm i'm figuring if i'm a gambling man the, the, those girls in I think there's like four or at least maybe even six in the Atlantic City area that are that the, whose bodies have been found. So I, that's where I would think would be the strongest um, evidence. And what what times did they go missing? And can we track him to Atlantic City? 
you know, back in those times. Um, fruitful area. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff. <clears throat> real crime stories, if you like real crime, true crime. From a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube friends, family, subscribers. And we really appreciate all of our friends and families. Guys, I want to play a little bit of law and crime with Anganette Levy, who has Catherine Ramblin on, who is a serial killer expert. Tuerman is in the Suffolk County Jail after pleading not guilty to the murders of Melissa Bartholomew. Megan Waterman and Amber Costello. The DA says he's also the prime suspect in the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Law enforcement says DNA, cell phone, and other digital evidence connects Huerman to the murders. He lived about 25 minutes from Long Island's Gilgo Beach in Massapequa Park. It's important to keep in mind Rex Huerman is innocent until proven guilty. To get some insight about the case, I spoke with Dr. Katherine Ramsland, who literally writes books on serial killers. She's interviewed Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, extensively and wrote about him in Confession of a Serial Killer, the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer. Ramsland also teaches a class at DeSales University in Pennsylvania about serial killers. What were your first thoughts when you heard that there had been an arrest in some of the Gilgo Beach murders? Oh, I think that's one of the big cases in my world, uh, the one that's been long unsolved that people have speculated about for a long time, um, in part because there are 11 bodies and it's unclear that they're all connected to one killer or several killers. So um, lots of people have been working on the case and to have an arrest, um, even just for the four uh, or three, I guess is only what he's been charged with, I think is pretty significant. Uh, and the police work on it was quite meticulous. I think it would have been very easy to not have solved this. Some of the evidence had been a lot around for a really long time, such as the burner phones and email addresses. Well, sometimes it just takes uh, somebody thinking about evidence in a different way or technology getting better. And certainly with the DNA back in, you know, 10 years ago, they couldn't do what they can do now. So had they had they tested the evidence back then, they wouldn't have had quite the same results as they do now. But the cell phone, the burner phone stuff really took somebody thinking differently about it and doing a very meticulous process of narrowing down things, comparing two witness reports um, so I don't really fault them for not figuring this out some time ago, because I think now, um, and it's that's really what happens with cold cases. A new team comes aboard. One person thinks about something differently. One person goes out and does something more over and above what they might normally do, like the dog, the, the person with the dog. Um, that sometimes it can happen. These cases can be a mix of skill and luck, things happening at the right time. So I think when you put it all together and see what the police actually did in this case, it's it's like what we've done with some other recently solved cold cases. Huerman faces charges in the deaths of three women and is the prime suspect in the death of a fourth. 
But what about the other remains found along Ocean Parkway, including the body of a toddler and an Asian man? Could Hureman be connected to those? Well, yeah, we have, do not have enough information. That's the first answer. Secondly, it's a myth that serial killers always do the same thing. Um, I wouldn't rule him out, but I do think you can compare things. Now, the toddler um, was, was the infant of one of the uh, other victims who was the mother. So that could just be that um, the, the child was with her at the time. She was the target. The child was collateral damage. That's certainly a possibility. I don't think the killer in this case necessarily targeted a child. Uh, we also have a male. So um, we have bodies that were dismembered and with the parts strewn about in, you know, distant places. That's a very different kind of approach than the four young women who were very similar in size, who were laid out and were wrapped in burlap, strangled, laid out fairly in a fairly uniform manner along Ocean Parkway within about a quarter of a mile. That's quite distinct from the other six. So I wouldn't rule them out just because serial killers do different things. Sometimes they experiment. Sometimes the early kills are different than later ones. But when we see the four as uniform as they are, and when we learn more about the suspect, who was a very organized person, I think it's more likely that the others are somebody else. If he is indeed also responsible for Maureen Brainerd Barnes's uh, murder, uh, this would have all occurred between 2007 and 2010. And then we have 13 years uh, where we don't hear about anything connected to him at this point. And of course, he is innocent until proven guilty. He's got a presumption of innocence. Do people just stop for 13 years? Or if he is indeed a serial killer, would you expect that they will connect him to other crimes between 2010 and 2013? Well, another myth is that serial killers can't stop. <laughs> that was some of these myths came out of FBI research in the 1990s, and it's pretty outdated, but still out there. Um, he could have stopped, but we don't know that he stopped. He could have just found a different place to put victims. We certainly have serial killers who have different um, locations for their dumping grounds. It depends on, on some of the things that happened in his own life. If he might have thought, you know, there were, that was too many in one place, or he might have found a better uh, area. But it's also possible that he did stop. Uh, I, I think it's unlikely, but it is possible. And we do have some cases where that has happened. I think Dennis Rader is a good example. That's fascinating, you know. Huh. Uh, so she sort of, uh, Catherine Ramsland, who's an expert on uh, serial killers, said that because... Um, the other uh, bodies at the location didn't fit sort of the the same uh, signature, if you will, were not uh, placed in the same way, were not wrapped in burlap bags. That doesn't mean it's not him. That's right. Uh, it could still be him. And she also said that it used to be a myth that serial killers can't stop killing. Sometimes they do, as in the case of, uh, Dennis Rader. Sometimes they can stop and start up again. And so uh, we can't be locked in. You're, you know, that, that expression, 
think outside the box. It's it's very important in in, uh, in crime fighting and in investigation to think outside the box. And thinking outside the box in this case, of course, is how they solved this case. From thinking outside the box, putting a task force together and not thinking that, oh, we'll never solve this because they've been working on it for so long. They came in there and in a year and a half, they had the necessary leads that identified a perpetrator. Mike? Yeah, that's the part of the vagaries of, of human nature. Uh, we are not computers. We are very unpredictable in how we do things. As much as we are creatures of habit, absolutely. The idea that like that he couldn't stop or serial killers are under this uncontrollable urge to kill, um, like they're going to howl at the full moon. You know, no. We saw that with Dennis Rader. He was dormant for over a, a decade. And he got into his mind that he wanted to start to become a little bit famous again or something. You know, that cat and mouse thing, uh, reference that his daughter was talking about. Maybe he felt that uh, he was bored. There wasn't anything going on in his life. He just wanted the excitement. He wanted to feel some sort of excitement again, teasing the cops, you know, leaving a hint here, something like that. It's possible, yeah, that he may have actually stopped cold turkey. Uh, because of who knows what is going on in his life. Or maybe he decided that he would continue to visit sex workers, but he wouldn't kill them um, because maybe he just couldn't figure out a time to do it when his wife wasn't around. We're not sure. That's what makes it so difficult because you can't dismiss those other uh, bodies because, you know, what what is the chances that there are two one or two other serial killers and they're all dumping their bodies all within like a mile stretch of highway i think so, that's unlikely I think right it's yeah very, it's crazy unlikely it's crazy so but i mike i also think that um when we listen to um rodney harrison uh, the suffolk county police commissioner we listen to um district attorney tierney from the suffolk county da's office I think it's clear, even though they're sort of backing off on the position, is that they were afraid that he was going to kill again, actively kill again. And they sort of backed away from that and said, no, we were more concerned that he was going to find out about the investigation and flee the country. And that's why we were uh, opened a grand jury, which is a secret proceeding. But I clearly think they were afraid that he was active. He was using the burner phones. He was calling sex workers. He was meeting people as early as July 3rd. He popped out of the woods at some park called Brady Park in Massapequa and scared the shit out of some young girl yeah. with his behavior. And if I was an investigator, I'd be like, we better pull the trigger on this arrest. This guy's dangerous. Right. You know? That would have scared me if I was an investigator and not that he was going to find out about the case, that he was going to kill again, that he was going to kill somebody. No, yeah, you're right. I think that... Uh... That sent alarm bells, but uh, to the to the uh, task force because you know you're you're following somebody and maybe they're I don't know if they're following 24 seven or they're just checking in on them a couple times during the day or whatever however they're doing it with with following them, but you get a report uh, that some uh, young lady jogging through the park or walking through the park is accosted by a six foot six three hundred pound guy who's creeping her out in this location. 
what's the chances of it not of not being him? If he wasn't under investigation uh, observation, you're looking at this going, it's got to be the guy. It's got to be our boy. So yeah, he it maybe he was becoming active again, and he was maybe going to change his mo. Maybe he was going to do something very different than calling up a sex worker. Maybe he was going to go after a woman in a park. Maybe he, you're not sure because there's been cases where uh, people have tried to uh, assault and rape women in, in public places in broad daylight. So you're not sure. I think you're right. I think they looked at this guy and said, he's a volcano ready to explode. Let's get him the hell off the street now. Absolutely. Mr. Renee M., I believe you just mentioned the 24-hour surveillance. Yes, but believe me, surveillance can lose a person. Sure. And it happens all the time. So he could have had 24-hour surveillance. You think sometimes the people that are following you, they can't go into the woods with you because right. they'll get made. They'll get made. That's, you know, when they make you as a cop, then you blow the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So someone that's conducting surveillance has to stay a safe distance away from you that they can observe you. But if someone goes into the woods, you can't go in there after them because they're going to know who you are. And so you've got to back off a little bit so as not to blow the surveillance. So, uh, yeah, 24-hour surveillance. but And that's why, because of this 24-hour surveillance, I think they decided that, you know, we better pull the trigger on this arrest because this guy's scaring us. He's dangerous and I, we think he's still active. And that's my opinion. Not that they were afraid. And that could have been a, an ancillary thing that, oh, we're afraid that he's going to find out about the investigation and we're going to blow the case. But I think that more so they felt that he was going to uh, he was going to hit again. The of the Gilgo Beach murders on Long Island, New York, has now spread to three other states. Investigators are trying to see if the suspected serial killer, Rex Hewerman, is connected to other unsolved killings in New Jersey, South Carolina, and Nevada. So far, the 59-year-old architect has been charged for the murders of three women. Lilia Luciano spoke with the Suffolk County District Attorney about the case. Rex, did you do it? Tonight, the investigation into the Gilgo Beach murders spreads nationwide. CBS News has learned police are looking into whether one or more of the three murders Rex Hewerman is charged with may have taken place inside the Long Island home he shared with his wife and children. His family was apparently away at the time of those murders. There's absolutely no evidence that that uh, uh, anyone acted with with the defendant, much less his family. Law enforcement officials also tell CBS News investigators are looking to see if Hewerman is connected to other unsolved murders throughout the county and the country. Suffolk County officials have executed several warrants, including in South Carolina and Las Vegas, where the alleged killer had ties. Police in South Carolina are looking into whether a 2014 missing person case could be tied to Hewerman as well. 18-year-old Aaliyah Bell went missing about 20 miles from where Hewerman owned land, but so far, police have found no connection. Investigators are searching the property for evidence, and it's where they found a Chevy Avalanche, which may have been used in at least one of the three killings. It did make you stop and think about the seriousness of what it goes on in the world today. Long Island investigators are actively working with Atlantic City Police to determine if Hewerman is involved in a string of unsolved killings of young women. As it stands right now, these charges are just allegations, but we look very much forward to proving them in court. 
Lilia Luciano joins me now from Massapequa Park, New York. What else did the uh, Suffolk County DA tell you? Well, John, one thing that I found very interesting, he mentioned that up until the moment of his arrest, they, of course, had to keep all the details of this invest of this investigation secret. I and mean, some of what led to the suspect was cell phone data. He would buy burner phones and different burner phones, allegedly, and call the different victims from them. So my obvious question to them was, look, these victims were all uh, sex workers, according to police. So are you interviewing sex workers in other areas? Are there other cases of other women who've gone missing? Would they have helped? And he said, well, the concern was that if we talk to people, then somebody may have tipped them off. So they just had to keep all of that uh, secret. And now they're starting to have those interviews. We also learned that his wife, his adult children are still all in shock that uh, their, her attorney, she's now filing for a divorce, told CBS News that they were told to leave this home, which is still being searched more than a week later, with just the clothes on their back, and they haven't been permitted back here ever since. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things is that she was sort of complaining about it as a reporter. Of course, that makes total sense. And we spoke about it last night, that the, the sex trade business is a small community and no one they would have protected him not knowing he's the serial killer oh yes the police were inquiring about you boom you just blew your investigation so i don't know if the the, the media understands that but there's there's a real problem with that you know duty run was in the, is in the chat and he just mentions also that um the police, even at this hour, or when he just he left Rex Uerman's home, was still taking out paper bags, which are, we know, Mike, what does a paper bag mean? It means it's potentially forensic right. evidence because right. forensic evidence is put in paper so the evidence does not degrade. So that is an indication that whatever they're recovering has potentially uh, biologic uh, value that needs to be protected by being uh, stored in, in paper containers. Mike. Yeah, Bill, even if, uh, if, if he did kill uh, one of those uh, poor young ladies in his home and he cleaned up, maybe he did vacuum up, you know, did a good job. Maybe he threw some water on the carpet, whatever. If, if you got blood or some other matter that seeps through the carpet and you may still spread luminol and it, it's, you still may get a reaction where you pull the carpet up, you you know, rip it up in the corner and pull up to see if there's any stains on the bottom. You still may be able to get some sort of uh, indication of blood. And hopefully, uh, you know, if it is blood uh, or some other bodily fluid, something that you can get isn't too degraded in terms of DNA. But um, yeah, they're, they're, that house is going to be gone through just like the house in the Idaho case with uh, Koberger because you don't want to miss anything. They're going to take that house down to the studs uh, to get stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I can see the, the cops telling the family, take a, take a suitcase full of clothes. And basically, and, that's, and we're going to watch you. And that's it. You can't touch anything. Don't, don't, no, don't take any towels. Don't, don't take anybody else's socks. You just go. And we'll drive you to a hotel. That's it. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the uh, par for the course. They have to do that. They can't, they can't risk. Um, not knowing again, early, early, early on when they were told to leave, 
what if if there was any sort of family involvement, you wouldn't want to, the wife to say to take go into their their bedroom and take things from his closet that she would think would be incriminating if she was uh, in league with him. So um, yeah, that said, that their their lives are flipped totally upside down, like they could never imagine. But in this case, you have to do it. You got no choice. Absolutely. Unsolved crimes. I think there are remains in that home. Jewelry, underwear, shoes, etc. You know, uh, unsolved crimes that very possibly could be hairs. Mm -hmm. There could be uh, remnants of saliva, sexual bodily fluids, potentially blood. And someone in the chat said, I thought they were strangled. They could still leave skin cells sure. and things that are considered to be biological in nature that would be tremendous evidence and that's why they're searching it nine days later uh and then we mentioned of course and this is i think the the, the media is using this word all the time trophies and trophies are something that serial killers take from their victims and they really like to obtain these things because they can relive the crime at another time by visiting revisiting the trophy uh, an article of clothing, a piece of jewelry, a shoe, a beret from the hair, anything like that could be a trouble. In the case of um, two of the victims, they, they took their cell phones. They took the cell phones of Marie Brainerd Barnes and Melissa Bartelme. Imagine what a trophy that was to him, so much to the fact that he used it to taunt the families in his sadistic, psychosexual, sadistic way. That was probably the ultimate trophy. But are there other trophies in this home? Were there trophies in the storage facility? All of those things, if they can identify them as belonging to one of the victims, uh, is, is tremendous, tremendous evidence. Mike? Yeah, Billy, I would think, like the BTK killer um, who collected you know, driver's licenses and, and jewelry and things like that, and he kept it apart in a small box. I think he was in, in like a treehouse or something. I can't remember exactly where he kept it. But uh, and he would go out there and, the, and, to, and to be by himself. And he would touch these things and kind of like relive the thrill of, that he got. And remembering how he killed these people and the moment he killed them and how he felt about it. And um, I would imagine, is you know, as smart as he is, he's he's smart and stupid at the same time. I, I would think he would take some sort of thing besides the cell phone, a little emotional token memento, um, an earring, uh, like you say, anything like that, just to have something. Um, hopefully, you can find it. Um, I would imagine he probably would keep it in a place where he could get to it and no one else would know about it. So maybe in the house or perhaps in that storage facility where he would have the key. There's no way his wife could get to it. His, ch his children can get to it. You know, uh, as long as he, you know, that's his own little space outside the house. And maybe thinking, hey, if somebody ever does go into that storage facility, they're not going to understand what an earring is, what, what that earring, what the connection that earring has to me or anything. So, yeah. He's probably a trinket collector, definitely. Absolutely. 
Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on Joe Murray's website, jmurray-law.com. Joe is a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and we cannot uh, recommend him enough. You know, Mike, um, one of the things that um, many people uh, keep bringing up to me, and they think that I'm somehow protecting the beginnings of this investigation with Chief Burke, of course, uh, who went to prison, uh, uh, Thomas Spoda, who was the DA. Absolutely. There were some really tough years in this case. Yes. The fact that Burke didn't bring in the FBI, the investigation seemed to be uh, you know, just sort of flagelling all over the place because they weren't, it wasn't uh, cohesively, there was no unit, uh, there was no task force, like there, task force like there is now. And we all talk about that one piece of evidence that goes back to September of 2010 with Amber Costello. Right. When a large man in a Chevy Avalanche made an appointment with her using his burner phone and went to her home uh, in West Babylon. That's out on Long Island, West Babylon. And he actually went into the home. And at some point, there was a ruse. And the boyfriend came out and acted like he was going to, you know, go after Rex Human. Rex sort of fled the scene. And... Um, he got really ticked off about that. Oh, yeah. And called her another day or two later and met with her again. And that was the last time she was ever seen. That incident, that information languished in the case folder. And no one picked up on it. And right away, when the task force was put together, boom, someone from the state police not only noticed that, but acted upon it and saw if they could connect. And of course, there was other things. They had the burner phones. Uh, they had other suspicions about Rex Schuerman, and then they found out that he owned this Chevy Avalanche. So, coincidental, or was it bad? Was it bad investigative work by the investigators that had the case years ago, or was it outstanding investigation by the people that were in the task force, Mike? Yeah, Bill, it could be a combination of both. It could be that originally um, when they're, the, the assigned detective may have thought this was a missing persons uh, kind of case and that it wasn't going to be a homicide. And um, we look back now, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, it, if there was a partial license plate, they would have, had, they would have been on to Herman, Herman uh, from, from day one. But it could be that the... Uh, the the, the um, detective assigned wasn't paying too much attention. Maybe figured it's a sex worker. They come and they go. He'll be she'll be back next week. You know that sort of thing. And maybe he or she put it aside to do some other you know other more pressing cases at that time, and that it just languished and it was overlooked. It was you know these back in the day. This is all paper you know, and it's just paper files and Manila folders. And maybe uh, it went on and on and on, and they started looking at other uh, some of the other cases, 
and started look and going through all of those old files. And that uh, state trooper happened to have a really keen eye. As you say, you start a task force, you got to go from day one, go back to 2009 or 2010 and work your way forward back to uh, where you are presently. And somebody with, sh with sharp eye realized, holy smokes, we got a guy. How many guys are there that are that aren't playing in the NFL that are like six foot six, you know, 300 pounds. And they're visiting a sex worker on Long Island with a Chevy Avalanche. Um, and by that point, they had already started getting cell phone data. And that person was able to, you know, marry the two facts together. It was probably a little bit of both. It could have been that a little bit of, ah, don't worry about it. There's a sex worker. She's going to show up and just put it aside and put other stuff on top of it. And boom, you know, it just kind of gets lost in the system. And sharp eyes right now with a task force, maybe poor police work uh, and then excellent police work. Absolutely. I'm Look, I'm not defending. Uh, I don't know. Um, if it was shoddy police work back mm -hmm. in the day that right. overlooked this this lead, was it that obvious, or did it become obvious because they had this other information? Right. And I'm not protecting anyone or saying I can't pick it out. I just know that the task force discovered it pretty damn quickly and acted upon it, and we are where we are here today with someone under arrest for these. Horrific crimes. Operating on the theory that the accused serial killer, Rex Heuerman, may have lured the victims into his home when his family was away. Now, this new information coming as the wife of the Go-Go Beach murder suspect is breaking her silence. Heuerman's wife saying she and her family are going through a, quote, devastating time in their lives and that it's especially hard on their elderly family members. Asa Ellerup filing for divorce from Heuerman just yesterday. They were married for 27 years. Rex Heurman is being held in Suffolk County Jail tonight. Sheriff Errol Toulon runs that facility. He has visited Heurman in his cell three times, and he joins me now. And, Sheriff, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you uh, for being with us. And I understand police have been searching Heurman's family home for days now. They've re removed dozens of bizarre items, a glass and case doll and, and many others. Uh, and we're learning tonight that they've been operating on the theory that Heurman committed the murders in his home. Uh, and then disposed of the bodies on that beach. What more are you able to tell us about all of this? You know, first, thank you for having me on, Erin. I just wanted to, uh, I saw this in the chat, that duty, Ron, because this is exactly what we're talking about now, is that the amount of boxes and bags being removed at 8.30 p.m. tonight was over the top from the front and back of the house. And one of the officers at the scene told me there was no end in sight. So that's at Rex Uerman's house in Massapequa Park. We also indicated that if the evidence is in paper bags, there's a good chance that this evidence is of a forensic or biologic nature that it has to be put in paper. So that's very interesting to hear that at 8.30 at night, there's still got voluminous amounts of, uh, of evidence being removed. I think it's most important for the viewers uh, to understand the fact that every piece of evidence that could be gathered, whether it's from the storage containers or from his home, could be valuable not only to the murders that he's currently being charged with, but more importantly, 
if we can connect them to other murders, whether they were in um, uh, New York or other locations. And, and, and is it, do you think it's possible there are, I mean, I understand anything's possible, but other locations outside of New York? You know, we're not going to exclude that possibility. And so I think as we gather evidence, now that we have actual DNA, we can compare it to other crime scenes that may have occurred in other locations who could be very suspicious and where he can be possibly a suspect. So, Sheriff Toulon, I understand that Herman is obviously in your in your jail, uh, and he's currently spending all of his time alone, 60-square-foot cell, monitored while he eats, has a television but is not watching it. Is there anything else that you can share with us about uh, the conditions of his uh, current jail confinement and his behavior? You know, he's currently under suicide watch by our mental health staff who has put them uh, in that category, and that's really not something that's... Uh, you know, it's something that's generally done with someone who has a notable uh, case coming into our facilities. So we have two correction officers. We have also added some extra technology cameras uh, facing his cell because one of the things that we do not want to do is make sure that we are diligent in uh, the surveillance of him and making sure nothing happens to him because we want to bring him to justice the same way he came to us. Anytime that he's going to be escorted throughout our facility, we are going to shut down the facility for any inmate movement because we don't know if any one of the individuals that are in our custody have come in contact with him previously and may want to seek retribution. Hmm. Sheriff Toulon, I know that you have seen him on three occasions now. Uh, you know, you've interacted with him. You've had a chance, I, you know, for lack of a better word, to, you know, look him in the eye, look him in the face. What can you tell us about those interactions? You know, uh, amazingly, no uh, emotions whatsoever. And when you think about someone, you know, last week that was roaming around the streets of New York and also Massive Peak were parked freely, to be confined in the space that he's currently confined in, you would think that you would see some emotion. But I can tell you, you know, over the next course of uh, days and weeks, as his circumstances change, you know, you just mentioned earlier about the fact that his wife has filed for divorce. I don't know if his children will have any contact with him. And as things start to become more and more distant for incarcerated individuals, you know, their behavior inside of uh, the facilities can change, which is something that we really have to be cognizant of. Sheriff, his wife did say tonight that she and her family are going through a devastating time. Uh, she did obviously file for divorce, 27 years of marriage. So she obviously is married to him during any of the murders that you've already uh, accusing him of, uh, as well as in addition to any others that, that may you may be able to bring charges for. And you mentioned his children, adult children. Do you know whether she's reached out to him or visited him, any of them, since he was arrested? So no one has visited him other than his attorney since his incarceration. And we are also you know, monitoring that also. He is allowed to have anyone come and visit him, just like any other person in our custody. But more importantly, he can deny uh, access to any visit. So uh, someone can come and register for a visit to see him, but he can deny the visit. Has he denied any visits? Uh, he has denied two visits. Is there anything you're able to, I mean, were those journalists or were they other people? Yes, actually, they, they were journalists. Uh, he did not know who these individuals were that were attempting to visit him. And so he decided to deny those visits. Right. All right. Very interesting. It's it's amazing to me that a journalist uh, would would attempt to visit uh, an incarcerated serial killer after he was just arrested. I, 
that's pretty amazing to me. Schmitty, uh, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Why is D rated allowed to chime in on media? His daughter, okay, law enforcement interviewing him fine on media, though. I feel he should have no say. Please. Well, Schmitty, we have a, a press that is thirsty. I'll put it that way. They're thirsty for, uh, you know, the news that's going to bring people to watch. And, uh, you know, a lot of them don't have uh, very high ethics. And they'll bring anyone on if it means ratings, you know. Uh, and that's that's a little disturbing, I think. What do you think, Mike? I think you're right. Uh, the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, anything that makes your skin crawl, makes you uncomfortable, that's going to get a lot of clicks. You know, it's similar. You know, that's 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 what it is. And so, therefore, I, I'm not surprised that uh, journalists have maybe reached out to Dennis Rader for his comments or or he reached out to his uh, someone that he may know, uh, maybe a for, uh, that a former uh, author or something like that that's worked with him in the past, um, and, and given his comments. Um, and I I wouldn't imagine, you know, I, I can't. I I'm sorry, I don't have any problem imagining that there isn't right now uh, an author already starting to put a book together uh, on the on this Gilgo Beach case. Uh, we saw it with the BTK, uh, not the BTK killer, the uh, with uh, uh, Koberger. Uh, there's two books, I think, at least coming out. Or, yeah, one James Patterson, right. the world famous author, and one yeah. uh, a guy named uh, Bloom. Bloom, right? Uh, Howard Bloom. Yeah, Howard Bloom. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be the same thing here. I think probably we're going to find out in a month or two that there is a number of authors can't wait to get that book to the to the uh, Barnes and Noble shelf. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. And I think when, you know, when people expect um, ethical behavior from the media, they're just, I don't know where mm -hmm. they've been. There's not going to be ethical behavior. And, you know, they, what we think is unethical, they may think is, is just fine. Fair but, game. Uh, it's fair game. You know, yeah. that's, uh, that's part of the, part of the, sh it's showbiz. You know, that's what right. they would say. A predator that ruined families. You are man, an architect, husband, and father who has spent his whole life in Massapequa Park, hid in plain sight for more than a decade after investigators say he killed Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello, all sex workers with whom he communicated via burner phones. He's also considered the prime suspect in the death of a fourth woman, Maureen Brainard Barnes, whose body was found bound and hidden along Ocean Parkway, not far from the other victims. The long-awaited arrest came after detectives pursued a new lead, matching DNA from a pizza that Hewerman ate to a single hair on the burlap sack where Waterman's remains were found. He was arrested on Thursday night at his office in Midtown Manhattan and subsequently charged with three counts of first and second degree murder. He lives such a pro-social lifestyle, his job, his family. That's why people around him said, geez, he looked like such an ordinary guy. All of that contributed uh, I think, to his confidence in staying in the same place and not moving um, throughout New York or even throughout the country. Last year, Suffolk Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison announced the creation of an interagency task force solved at cracking the cold case. In March of 2022, Hewerman was first identified as a suspect. Detectives linked him to a pickup truck that a witness reported seeing when one of the victims disappeared in 2010. If not for the members of this task force, he would still be on the streets today.
Investigators spent the past few days collecting evidence from Hewerman's unkempt First Avenue home as neighbors watched in awe from the sidewalk. The search for evidence continued on Sunday at an Amityville storage facility after Suffolk County police executed a search warrant there. They um, are looking for any and all forensic slash DNA evidence that they could find uh, at his home, at his office, because he has his own place of business, whether it's hair, whether it's anything else. You know, Mike, we had mentioned also when they come up with some evidence that potentially could belong to a victim or several victims, that is where they will use the press to mm -hmm. get it out there. Say there's a specific piece of jewelry or piece of clothing, a belt, a shoe, a hat, anything like that. What better way to get that out there to potentially find someone that said, that could be so-and-so. That looks like so-and-so's hat, you know. And that's one of the ways that – and I, I would think that, that there's a tremendous possibility that he took trophies. Oh, and yeah. that's what they're going to pull from this house, I believe. Look, he had this secret room vault with over 300 guns in it, supposedly. It seems like the number of guns changes every day. I think 92 of them or 94 of them were registered. right. And another couple of hundred were unregistered guns. So in that room was where that locked safe, if you will, uh, is where he probably had his most uh, culpable evidence against him. Yeah, because that was something where uh, you had a locked room and a locked vault inside that locked room. And I'm sure it was locked 24-7. He's the only one with the key. His wife, you know, um, accepted that fact that there was some crazy stuff going on with 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 him. Um, and didn't probably did not really want to know exactly what was in that room besides maybe firearms. And um, yeah, he is a he's going to have to have, I'm sure, a couple of trinkets there. If they can, if you say if there's a piece of jewelry that belonged to one of those girls. Or that, or that Megan Barnes, um, more, I'm sorry, Maureen Barnes, if there was a piece of jewelry that was hers that they could identify, um, a ring from her finger. I know one of the victims that they have not yet charged him with, uh, she had uh, a peach, peaches tattoo on her chest, and they, were, they thought that was really distinctive. You know, those sorts of little things could really be a huge break in the case. And so... Um, yeah, that's what the press would be really good for, would be to take those pictures of those trinkets that they can find something, a ring, a high school ring that maybe one of these girls had or some sort of piece of jewelry, put it out there, and maybe somebody could say, I know who that belongs to. I know that. I've seen that. Because, you know, we all have certain things that we like to have, a baseball hat, uh, sunglasses, uh, a ring, you know, that sort of thing that you always have with you, you always have on you. And that would be perfect for the press in this case. You know, Mike, 100%, because you show it out there to the to the public, mm -hmm. and, you know, someone is going to, uh, Somebody to recognize it. Someone yeah. will recognize it. And that's, that's what we say. We say it all the time. The press can be your uh, best friend or your worst enemy. Mm -hmm. And I think that keeping this case out there in the public eye and keeping the publicity on it, 
will really help to solve potentially additional crimes that they haven't found out about yet, uh, but they potentially could be collecting evidence from these crimes that have yet, um, yet to be publicized. And maybe even some of them could be missing persons that haven't been classified as homicides. So all of those things are reasons why some of the evidence uh, that they're collecting in these warrants could be gold as far as uncovering more or additional crimes that he potentially could have committed. Yeah, Billy, a lot of, you know, we, when you're talking about the, the sex worker trade and some of these girls are runaways, some of these girls have lost tra uh, track of their families, the families lost track of them. They might go missing for a year, six months, and the families might not even realize that the person may be uh, with dead. Um, I'm a pessimist by nature because as a police officer, and I think there's a, a lot of these uh, missing person cases are homicide cases. And until you find their body or you have some sort of evidence, uh, prima facie evidence that they were abducted, kidnapped, you know, uh, came to, uh, you know, that sort of thing, they're going to be treated as missing persons. And a missing person case unless there's some sort of evidence of foul play, isn't going to be considered a possible homicide case right off the bat. And so there's a much slower process. We can only hope that there's um, that jewelry can uh, jog someone's memory to say, oh, my goodness, I remember that, you know, that sort of thing. And the cops can go looking through their files and see if they can connect a missing persons case to um, the Gilgo Beach killer, uh, Fuhrman. Absolutely. I mean, Mike, even even photographing some of the evidence mm -hmm. and allowing family members of missing persons to come in and, and view some of the um, the jewelry, but perhaps that they could potentially identify that could, you know, bring hope and potentially closure to a family member that identifies a, a readily identified piece of jewelry or article of clothing shoes, anything like that. Uh, and this is painstakingly how these cases have to be built. And it takes a tremendous amount of investigative know-how, a tremendous amount of patience, and a tremendous amount of bringing the people and sensitivity and dealing with these families. At this point in the show, I just want to say, you know, folks, we always want to talk about the victims and the victims' families in this case. And, you know, we never want to forget that this case isn't about the serial killer, uh, Rex Uriman. It's about what has been referred to at this point as the Gilgo Four. But they're not the Gilgo Four, they're human beings. And we always want to remember Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartolome, Amberlynn Costello, and Megan Waterman. And right now, that is what Rex Ewerman is being charged with and all the other potential victims that Rex Ewerman may be responsible for. We want to think of them at this time and their families. Mike, your, uh, your final thoughts, buddy. Final thoughts. Um, I think everyone needs uh, patience because um, this act, this investigation is going to continue. Like you said, there is so much more work to do, tremendous amount of work to do to go through each and every single piece of evidence that was taken out of the home of Hurman, out of the, his property in South Carolina, uh, out of his timeshare in Nevada, 
you know, out of those uh, storage facilities on Long Island and gotten over. They have to go over it to see if there actually is uh, something useful or, or is it just actually just junk. Um, and that's going to take a long time. So please, everyone, have patience and understand that in so, for some time, the police may be very tight-lipped like they were in the um, Koberger case because they need to be because this is an ongoing active homicide investigation. It's not like, you know, they got them, they got them in cuffs and they already set the trial date for a week from now. And, you know, by Labor Day, it's all going to be done. No, this is going to be a long drawn out process. So people just have, have patience. 100% folks. I want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. I want to thank duty Ron, uh, who did an unbelievable, um, live broadcast today of going to Rex Ewerman's house, uh, brought you folks that from all over the world to, the, to that location, and then actually took a ride out to Gilgo and gave you the feeling of what it was like to drive out there from Massapequa, potentially the route that Rex Ewerman may have taken. So I want to thank Duty Ron for sending all you guys that were watching that over to, uh, to our show. I want to thank all you new subscribers to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, our YouTube channel members, our Patreon members, and just all you subscribers that uh, make this channel what it is. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Good night, everyone. One episode, just